It's a story about a small town, very close-knit church, that had a guest pastor preaching one Sunday. And after delivering a very carefully prepared message, the visiting pastor stood outside the church with the host pastor at the close of the service. And he received many kind comments and accolades from the congregation who were filing out of church that morning, like good sermon pastor and fine message. However, there was one particular parishioner who stepped up and said, that was a terrible sermon. Although he was somewhat surprised and caught off guard, the guest pastor managed to maintain his composure. And then to his amazement, the man got back in the greeting line so he could take a second shot. Now the second time around, he said it again. He said, that was a terrible message. This time, for good measure, he added, the stories in your message were boring. I've heard the same one since I was a boy. Now about that time, the host pastor intervened, trying to rescue the situation, but he just made things worse. He quietly called his guest aside and he whispered in his ear and he said, pay no attention to that man. He's not very bright and he just repeats what he hears everyone else saying. <laughs> I liked it anyhow. So. Doing and saying what other people are doing and saying. It's sometimes called mimicking and there are other people in our lives who are masters at the art of mimicking, and that's our children. It's almost frightening, the shadows and the reflections we see of ourselves in our children, isn't it? They mimic us, they imitate us, they reflect us. Our Lord said it would be that way in our lesson from Luke's Gospel, the 17th chapter, Jesus assures us that this will happen. He said one day, or this is how Luke writes it, one day Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. <laughs> watch what you do, Jesus said. This imitating nature of children is good and it's even wholesome if we in turn are constantly reflecting Jesus. However, the central point of this word from the lips of Jesus is that if we are not reflecting, if we are not imitating our Lord, there is a crack, if there's a crack in our mirror and we are casting a bad reflection, his warning is both straightforward and it's firm. Jesus said, sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. It's much like the story about the man who was blind. Everyone in the village knew he was blind from birth. One night he was seen carrying a lantern down the street. Why are you carrying a lantern, a friend asked, when you can't see anyway? He responded, because I don't want anyone to stumble over me. Echoes of our Lord. Beware if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin. I don't want to get bogged down with a lot of applications because many of them are obvious to all of us. We need little help in making some of these connections. But for starters, let me suggest just a couple to illustrate my point this morning. If we use foul language at home, we shouldn't be shocked when our children do. 
If we sit down to a meal and dig in like Fido without acknowledging God who is the giver of all things, we shouldn't be shocked and hurt when our children seem to be ungrateful for what we do for them and give them. Guess where they learned it? If we never mention the name of Jesus Christ in our home or speak of our trust and our own faith in him, we can't expect our children to be spiritually strong when they leave home someday or struggle as teenagers in a perplexing society of mixed standards and values. But there's an even less subtle case of this causing someone to spiritually stumble. Dig through the files of this church for a list of past confirmation classes. You know, I was thinking about this last week. We confirmed a number of our high school students. I've been here uh, a lot of years, and I've seen a lot of confirmation kids come through classes year after year. Dig through the files. Who are the young people who have stayed with the church? Maybe not just this church, but any church are active and involved in the life of a church someplace. And who are the ones who have fallen away from the church and its fellowship? And with a sad kind of consistency, it's often the children of parents who either dropped their kids off for class and picked them up after church, or those who showed by their example that being in God's house for worship each week was not the top priority, or those families who were not living the faith consistently at home, that are, their kids are not in church, by and large, anywhere. We had better know where our children learn their behavior when they begin to model these values. Most of the time, it's in the home. But what about in the world where we live our lives after we unfold our hands and, you know, leave worship? Someone once said, the reason the world doesn't know Jesus better is, it because, it, is because it knows us all too well. Do we mirror the patience of Jesus when someone cuts in front of us in line? How about when a driver takes their half out of the middle of the road? Or when someone is slow pulling away from a traffic light? Are we a reflection of Jesus when we pay good money at a restaurant and the food isn't hot or the service is less than good? Will that server ever visit this church because of the kind and forgiving nature she saw in you? You know what I'm talking about. Jesus says there's no such thing as an off-duty disciple. What about among ourselves? What about our lives together as Christ followers? You know, there are a lot of churches who deal with things like the person who won't belong to a small group because they didn't get into the one they wanted to get into, or the person who won't sing on the worship team because they didn't, don't get to be the featured soloist each week, or the person who won't work on a project because that other person is already on the committee. Several years ago, a uh, a large insurance company made an in-depth study <clears throat> among pastors, asking pastors what courses they would like to see added to their training in seminary if they could go back. And we might guess things like counseling or preaching or business administration or teaching, but tops on the list of classes that they would like to have had more training in, conflict management, handling backbiting and pettiness among church people. Isn't that incredible? With that in mind, let's look at our scripture from Matthew's gospel, the 18th chapter, very similar to Luke 17. But here's what Matthew says. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them, and then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow waits the world because it tempts people to sin. Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting. So who are these little ones that Jesus is referring to? You, uh, referring to? I'm sure when he said these words, Jesus didn't have a scale or a tape measure in his hand. And in the context of this gospel, Jesus has just been talking about a number of very adult things, like trusting in riches, and the rich man and Lazarus, and about divorce. And so when he places a child in front of his disciples and spoke of these little ones who trust in me, who is Jesus referring to? Let me offer a couple of suggestions. First, it's not certain whether there was still a large group of people there while Jesus was teaching, but regardless, Jesus addresses these remarks to a wide group of disciples and followers, not just the 12 apostles. And the subject matter has broad application because it has special relevance to the Christian who needs guidance concerning their relationship to and responsibility for other people. Jesus says that the main characteristic of Christian greatness is humility. Not ability, but humility. Not achievement, humility. Not impressive performance, humility. No wonder we read in the Old Testament, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways. Jesus' way always runs directly counter to the way of the world. The humility of a child consists mainly of this attitude of trust and dependence. And that is the attitude that God desires his people to take toward him. The prevalent modern mood of self-sufficient, worldly-wise sophistication is incompatible with genuine spirituality. And while Jesus held this little child in his arms, he used that child for a further object lesson. He said to the disciples, I have a deep concern for children. The person who rejects a child rejects Christ. Pretty startling truth. And then Jesus goes on to deepen his warning. He says something like, whoever shall offend, whoever shall cause one, to, one of these uh, children to stumble, whoever will ensnare one of these little ones who believe in me. Now he's singling out those persons who have a personal trust in Christ, people who are committed to him in simple childlike faith. He says, whoever will cause them to stumble are guilty of one of the most serious of all offenses. Jesus seems to be talking about children in some sense when he refers to the little ones, but I think he's also speaking to those who are children in the faith, new converts, people who are just beginning to grow in their faith. Jesus declares that if anyone should cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better to have a large millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now in Jesus' day, this was a punishment that was reserved for the worst criminals. The size of a huge millstone used for grinding grain would prevent any chance of the body rising again to the surface and being buried by friends. 
a consideration which in the mind of his hearers greatly increased the horror of this kind of death. Now, it's hard to conceive how Jesus could have given a more solemn warning concerning the awfulness of causing a new or a weak Christian to stumble in their faith and to be enslaved in sin because of our influence. The need for a consistent, godly life is dramatically illustrated here by Jesus like flashing lights at a railroad crossing. And we, do, we would do well to heed the warning. So let me ask you the question again. What do we mirror to each other and to the world around us? What's our responsibility as parents, as individuals, as a congregation to our children and to our youth and to our adults who are beginning to grow in their faith? See, moral values and Christian virtues like honesty and faith as well as the more commonplace details of life must be taught and exemplified, first of all, in the home. Children depend on their parents to exemplify life to them. Our example will do more to teach something to a child than any other single thing that we can say or do. So what does, what does that say to us about the language we use? the anger we demonstrate, the love we show, the bad habits we have, the life of faith that we lead. See, we need to be ourselves what we want our kids to be. How we need parents who will teach kids to love God, to reverence his house, to read his word, to pray. We need Christian parents who will teach discipline and respect and love, spend time with kids and be the kind of Christian models that our kids can look up to. The church also is called to be a nurturing community who nurtures children and new believers. You know, in our response at baptism, we covenant with God to provide a spiritual home where people who are young Christians are cared for and taught and given opportunity to respond in faith and encouraged to make a personal commitment of their life to Jesus Christ. How can we do that? When by our example, we say that Christian education is not all that important for us to be involved in. When we think that going to a small group is just reserved for a few people who have nothing better to do. When we think that teaching or helping in Sunday school, somebody else's responsibility. And prayer and spiritual life are nice sounding words that we subscribe to, but we fail to practice. What is the judgment on us if we fail to be that nurturing community of people and if by our own example of non-involvement and inconsistency we reject our children or turn away from those who are weak in the faith. I would not be in ministry today if a significant number of people had not demonstrated their faith in me and faith to me by their caring, by their example, by their encouragement and prayers when I was a young person. See, when our Lord finished these sayings, Luke records the response of his hearers mostly the disciples. And here's what the disciples said. Jesus, make our faith greater. A fair request and one that Jesus is eager to grant and fulfill. He would, all, he would like all of us to become spiritual giants in faith. But it reminds me of a passage of scripture from Acts chapter four, verse 13. It says, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. And I love this last sentence. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants for you and for me. 
when the chips are down, when the Spirit, of, the Spirit of God wants the people whose lives we touch to be able to look at us and say, they have been with Jesus. Many of you have either been here on a weekend when we've done a baptism or you've seen a baptism, but there's a response at the end of the baptism ceremony that we ask you, the congregation, and it's this, with God's help, we will so order our lives after the example of Christ that this child surrounded by steadfast love may be established in the faith and confirmed and strengthened in the way that leads to life eternal. Most Christian denominations have a question or a response as part of the baptism service, especially the baptism for infants, much like this. Quick story, Will Williman, who is a bishop in our United Methodist Church, was a pastor for many years in a, at a church in South Carolina. And one day he was doing a baptism. The question was asked of the parents, do you promise to guide and nurture this child by word and deed with love and prayer to be a faithful member of this church? And the answer was given with a soft and holy whisper, we do. The water was sprinkled onto the child. The child handed back to the person, to the parents. The congregation stood. They sang a hymn at the end of the service. And everyone was leaving the church to head for the local restaurants. And Willeman was standing at the doorway of the worship center, shaking hands with people as they left. And one young child came up to him and began to tug at his robe. Pastor looked down and he saw this not quite three foot tall, not altogether literate six-year-old just standing there staring at him. Where's this kid I promised to take responsibility for? The child asked. I want to meet him. Willeman smiled and mumbled something about the family had already left that morning, but it occurred to him later that among all the congregation that was in church that morning, this child left deeply concerned about the burden of that responsibility. You see, it doesn't matter if you're a parent or not. It doesn't even matter if you're an adult or a child. We all have a great responsibility to do what we can do to see that the children of this congregation have faith. It's not an easy task to teach faith, but it's all of our responsibility. So if you're still looking for some words of application from this message today, let me give you two. First, our children learn by our example of faith. Do you know what you believe? Do you? Do you know what you believe as a Christ follower? We can't teach anyone the faith until we have listened and learned from God and we ourselves have a clear and comprehensive understanding of what it is we believe. And then secondly, we teach our children by our example. If our children are to have faith, they need to see it in us. Before we can teach our children the faith, we first must have that faith, and the same is true of any Christ follower. Once we become a Christian, we're a role model, not just for kids, but for people in the community. We all know how good and important it is to have a good environment for our children, responsible parents constantly trying to discourage their kids from hanging around with the wrong crowd for fear they might pick up the wrong habits. Well, conversely, being in a positive environment can have a positive effect. Making the faith a part of the consistent environment in your home and elsewhere is crucial. Saying grace at mealtime, teaching your kids to pray at bedtime, these can be far more important than prayers they hear in church. Hearing the Bible being read as a family far outweighs the hearing of a child's devotional message on Sunday morning. Again, 
My, one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. If you were here at the beginning of the service, you heard me share it from the message translation. This is from the uh, New Living Translation. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see, if our children are going to have faith, it's up to us to be the example. Let's pray. God, your word tells us that we shall know the truth, and your truth is what sets us free. So liberate us, we pray, from ignorance and pride and half-truths and limited knowledge so that we will truly be free to rediscover ourselves and our capabilities in the light of your word. We pray through Christ our Lord.